an unexpected story out of the so-called hot labor summer. Strippers united will never be divided. Binge all four episodes of Imperfect Paradise Strippers Union wherever you get your podcasts. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. Today, we'll take a look at how concert tours are being canceled in parts of Asia because of the coronavirus. Then, the director of a new docuseries about how a posse of internet sleuths hunted down a murderer who posted videos of killing cats. You can do anything on the internet. You can post or publish pictures of violence, violence against people. That's kind of okay. But the one thing you can't do is hurt the fluffy kittens and cats. And Isabella Rossellini has become the ringleader of her own circus. That's today on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Welcome to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The coronavirus already has claimed more than 1,000 lives in mainland China. Since it was first detected in the city of Wuhan, the virus has spread to two dozen other countries. And now some bands and musicians are postponing or altogether canceling tour dates in Asia. I spoke with Billboard's pop correspondent Tamar Herman about coronavirus concerns, and she started by telling me which acts have been affected by the health scare. Right now we're seeing a lot of artists canceling events in Asia who, you know, span the board, whether they're... China-focused acts, Japanese acts, Korean acts. The Pixies just canceled something. You know, the Boston Orchestra canceled. Um, a lot of K-pop and Hong Kong-based and Mando pop artists are canceling their tours within Asia. But beyond that, we're starting to see some Asian acts cancel their tours beyond Asia. So a few K-pop groups recently canceled European legs of their tour, in addition to, you know, either postponing or canceling dates of shows in Asia. So we're kind of seeing a lot of people really uh, trying to anticipate, you know, the worst because we really don't know so much about coronavirus right now. So I think a lot of people are trying to take uh, preventative action to make sure that they, you know, both as artists and as humans, they're not, you know, unwittingly the cause of, of a mass outbreak at a concert or something. So are they concerned that by staging an event with a lot of people in one place, it could accelerate the spread of the coronavirus? Are they worried about their own personal health? I guess they could also be worried about whether or not people are going to show up and buy tickets. What are the factors that are going into these decisions? So it's pretty much all of the above, you know. People are not really sure how the virus spreads right now. We really don't have a whole lot of information. We just know that it's spreading pretty rapidly. So I think there's kind of the concern of you know, artists traveling internationally or, you know, just even interacting with more people than usual, especially when some parts of China and other countries are already putting a, uh, people under quarantine. So kind of just preventative, you know, we don't want to engage with the virus. We don't want our fans to engage with the virus. So a few K-pop acts gave out 
you know, masks and they made sure there was hand sanitizer and ample soap. And I'm pretty sure that was right as we started hearing about the lack of masks. And now we're hearing more and more either cancellations or putting off the dates and kind of trying to find some middle ground. But a few events are still being held uh, with the aid of digital media, you know, live streams and whatnot. Right now, things are pretty unclear. Nobody really knows what's going on. So it just kind of seems like people are being preventative for the sake of being preventative. A lot of the concern right now is in Asia, but the virus seems to be spreading globally. Are there acts who are now canceling outside of Asia, maybe in Europe, maybe in North America? At what point are people reconsidering their entire tours? So K-pop boy band 17 just canceled the rest of their OTU world tour. They were supposed to go to Europe and a few other countries in Asia after having already toured throughout Asia and the U.S. And now they just kind of put a whole halt to it. And they just said, we're not continuing this tour. We don't really know what's going on. And coronavirus is just too much. So we are seeing that another, I think another K-pop group, AB6, also canceled their upcoming European tour. We haven't really heard so many cancellations in the U.S. yet, but we also haven't had many cases of coronavirus in the U.S. yet. So it could just be that there are more in Europe, so we're hearing more. But right now, predominantly, the cancellations are Asia-based, but we're increasingly hearing about outside of Asia as well. We're talking with Tamar Herman at Billboard about concerts being canceled over coronavirus fears. When an organization like the Boston Symphony Orchestra goes on a tour to Asia, they are in some ways kind of cultural ambassadors. They're bringing their music to an audience that might not have heard it before. But when pop bands are touring, it's basically how they make a living because streaming has really impacted the amount that an artist can make off of record sales. So how important is touring and the merchandise related to touring to most bands, and is this going to be a financial problem for a lot of bands who are having to cancel? Yeah, touring makes a lot of money. So, you know, the, it, the postponements kind of make sense for the few acts that have postponed their tours, and they're going to probably try to re you know, pick a new date. That's going to be a way that we're going to see artists try not to lose out on the money. But, it, but uh, artists that have canceled their whole tours, like beyond even, you know, just the pop acts. Uh, We see also not only Boston Symphony Orchestra, but the National Symphony Orchestra have canceled their tour in Asia. Like we're seeing total shutouts happening. And so it's not only going to impact them financially because now, you know, they've already signed contracts with their performers and now they're not making any money. So I assume that the orchestra still has to pay their staff. So there's going to be a huge loss there. So I assume we're going to see, you know, some uh, bands and some companies try to you know, recover their loss by setting up last minute events or, you know, concerts in the near future closer to home, maybe. But concerts, ticket sales are going to have to be refunded. That's going to be a huge loss for companies. As I mentioned, that Group 17, they closed out their whole tour and they had huge arenas that they were performing in. So now they have all that loss of ticket and uh, revenue and just, you know, the general, like there's contract fees that you put into when you're putting on a show, you're paying promoters. These people still have to be paid. So I think we're going to see pretty sizable losses to some degree, depending on how these companies recover their losses. And it's time will tell how big these losses are, but it's, it's pretty sizable just in the moment to see, you know, saying, Oh, we're, we're, we're shutting out, you know, three, five, 10 dates that we've already sold tickets for, that money has to be refunded. That money has to be uh, found somehow in other business. You know, we're probably going to see a big dip in a lot of music companies if this keeps on happening. 
So the death toll from the coronavirus has surpassed 1,000 people in mainland China, which has passed what SARS killed in 2003. So how, how are the cancellations compared to what happened around SARS uh, 17 years ago? Right now, I, it's really hard to compare because this is just starting and we don't know how long this is going to last. And hopefully things can be figured out more quickly than that. Tamar Herman is a pop correspondent for Billboard. Tamar, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, how a group of internet sleuths tracked down a cat killer. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. The Netflix miniseries Don't with cats is in part a profile of Luca Magnata, a cat killer turned murderer. But mainly, it's a story about a small band of armchair investigators who used Google, Facebook, and the internet equivalent of shoe leather detective work to identify and locate Magnata, even before police investigators did. Magnata was convicted of the murder of a Montreal man in 2014. Mark Lewis is the director of the Netflix series. He learned the details of this strange case a couple of years after it happened, and he started by retracing the steps of two of the amateur online sleuths. I actually made another film about a dark net um, kind of drug empire that ran ran on the dark, on the deep web uh, called Silk Road, and had become really interested in you know, the kind of murky world of, of the internet and was really on the lookout for another story. So when I came across the Luca Magnotta story, I'd kind of I'd kind of vaguely remembered bits and pieces about it because it was a few years back, but didn't really know the ins and outs. And when we sort of dug into it, what was interesting to us was that there was a kind of a backstory to it that a year and a half before the murder, it had been um, a posse of incredible internet sleuths. What? type of individual would think, I'm going to take a vacuum-sealed bag and place two kittens in it. There are two central characters who are part of that internet sleuthing team. And I'm wondering, having gone through what they went through, were they at all reluctant to revisit this period in their lives? Yeah, so look, the two protagonists in the series are Deanna Thompson and John Green. John Green's not his real name. Uh, they're these two animal activists, justice seekers, who who, who tried to hunt Luca Magnotta down long before the murder. This had been, you know, 18 months, nearly two years of their lives that they've been hunting this guy, seeing the warning signs, thinking that he was going to turn to murder, and then he did. It was, for them, as with everybody in this series, an incredibly traumatizing experience you know a, a man jun lin tragically died and you can't forget this is not a story about luca magnotta it's a story about the victim jun lin so when we came to them and said look we might like to make a, a a series about it and about um 
about your efforts to try and hunt him down before he became a killer. They were very reluctant to do it. So was that part of your pitch to them, that this could be in some ways a cautionary tale about what to look for and when to act and why these things are important to notice? Absolutely it was, John, but it was as much their pitch to us. We never wanted to make sort of, what I don't know what you would call it, like serial killer porn. We didn't want to make a, some trashy, salacious kind of documentary series. There was the, the, the interesting thing about this story is that it has some very important things to say about internet culture. It has very important things to say about the warning signs of people who are going to turn to murder. It has a, a very, you know, an important thing to say about about social media and about how, you know, we all uh, now sort of get our self-esteem and value from social media and sort of, you know, uh, social esteem from the internet. I want to ask you about how people reacted to the first videos uh, where Luca Magnata is killing kittens and later a puppy. Eight minutes, 10 seconds or so in, there's a dog, a little puppy introduced. It's a little black and white dog. And it's just really sad. What is it about how people react to violence perpetrated against animals that they don't necessarily do, I'm speaking broadly, about humans? I think it's a really good question. I think you're right. There is there is some way in which people seem to be more concerned about um violence against animals than, than people and it's kind of surprising um, I mean I think that also goes to the reason why we called the the series Don't F*** With Cats was because there is this kind of, it's, it's not even unwritten it's a written rule of 4chan and 7chan rule zero which is you know you can do anything on the internet you can post or publish sex, pictures of violence violence against people, that's kind of okay but the one thing you can't do is is hurt the fluffy kittens and cats that we all love to post pictures of on, on Facebook. So the golden rule is, rule zero is don't f*** with cats. In these videos, not only of the murder of the cats, but also of Jun Lin, there are things that are referenced and we don't see, but there are also things that you don't even mention, especially about what happens to Jun Lin toward the end of the video. That is beyond horrific. It's almost indescribable. What were the rules about how much you could even describe? Because you don't show a lot, but there are things that happen, especially in the murder video, that you don't even mention that are beyond understanding. With all of the videos, the animal abuse videos and the murder video, we were very clear from the start that we did not want this to be a kind of gratuitous program, that you gratuitously showed people what were in these videos. They are horrific. Um, the murder video is absolutely horrific, and the things that Luca does to Jun Lin are unspeakable. Uh, equally, the animal abuse videos are h- horrific to watch. We never wanted to show them. Um, it was important, however, that we, with the, in the case of the animal videos, that we showed somebody watching them so that you could communicate to the audience how awful they were and what kind of a reaction they elicited. After that, I see a black and white puppy with the individual holding a knife. At that point, I had to stop. I had to walk out. This was ridiculous. I come back in. Then I see... I had to stop. (laughs) You needed to understand the sort of horror that people had when they saw the animal abuse videos it the, you know how it affected people motivated them to hunt him down even more and that was really really important so the rules were for us as filmmakers we didn't want to show the details however 
in the case of the animal abuse victims, we needed to show certain frames, not frames of the murder of the animal, the killings of the animals, but there is obviously in in the videos, you know, frames which are evidence. It looks like a very small, cramped room. But for me, there's a lot of information in there. The light sockets, electrical receptacles. And those are things that we know can point to like maybe a specific area of the world. Seeing a cigarette packet in the back of the frame, by seeing a doorknob, by seeing a table, by seeing the vacuum. And those frames obviously we had to show because they were part of the, the forensic research of the these incredible animal activists. We're talking with Mark Lewis about his documentary series, Don't F*** With Cats. I want to ask you about the cinematic challenges in telling this story. I'm going to start by playing a clip where Deanna Thompson and John Green are using Google Maps to find a location in Montreal that's central to the story. And so I'm going down one street, she's going down another street. I'm going down this street, she's going down another street. Then now all of a sudden, I go, holy there's the stairs right there. How do you go about reconstructing what they're doing online? The clicks, the Google Maps, the zooming in on images. What were your rules? What were you allowed to do? And what did you say you couldn't do? Well, obviously, there was a great sort of cinematic challenge, a filmmaker challenge to try and make this feel as immersive and as immediate as we could. Um, They described it, and the way that I do interviews is to get people to describe blow by blow, moment by moment, what they did and what they saw. So we had that interview material uh, already, and then it was the case of literally showing what they did. So we literally redid what they did and and motion captured it on on computers. because there was a, you know an innate drama in that, I think. It was exciting as they're getting closer to clues and putting things together. We wanted to live it with them. I want to ask you about how you approach dealing with the victim of this murder, Jun Lin, because one yeah. of my problems with the podcast Serial is that Heyman Lee's life and death was almost kind of an accessory to the story. Yeah. It wasn't important who she was and what life she led. And it feels like you have a slightly different perspective on honoring the victim of this crime. I do. I mean, I, do, I think it's, it's incredibly important that we honour him. You know, it, it's still, you know, I will admit one of the dangers of doing any kind of true crime documentary or, or, or documentary that concerns murder is that there is sort of this sort of natural kind of focus on the murderer that people are wanting to know about the murderer. We wanted to approach things differently and make sure that there was a fair and even focus and that we really understood who the victim was. So we uh, very fortunately... Uh, got an interview from his 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 very best friend Benjamin Sue, and you know I'm eternally grateful for Benjamin for for what he did. He he came from China, especially to Canada, to film with us, and you know was the most eloquent advocate for his friend. I want to play another clip from the series. This is very close to the end of it, and it's Deanna Thompson, one of the internet sleuths, talking about the broader question that I think this series raises. Did we feed the monster, or did we create it? And you, you at home watching a whole documentary about Luca Magnata. Are you complicit? Yeah, she's looking right into the camera at this moment. And it's, it's not essentially a hypothetical question. It's a real question. Do you have a way to answer it? And how does it make you feel about your role in making this documentary? Again, this is a really, really important question. I think, you know, when when you have this story, which is the story of a man who had tried to be an actor, who tried to be a model, 
uh, and basically failed or not done well. And so was so desperate for notoriety and fame that he turned to, to killing instead of initially animal abuse and then killing in order to get the notoriety, to get fame. And to what extent would we as filmmakers, uh, to what extent would Deanna and John Green as participants in the documentary, and to what extent back then when they had been looking for him, you know, and hunting him down, and therefore every time they tried to hunt him down, he would do worse things, to what extent were we all complicit? And the answer to a, to, to, to a large degree is a little bit yes. And are, are we as as viewers sort of complicit in being really interested in true crime, being really interested in murder stories, and therefore we're all feeding a person like Luca Magnotta. Does that mean that we shouldn't make a series about that? I emphatically think no. I mean, I think we should be making a series about this because there are important things to say. There are important lessons to learn. But I think, you know, there's no doubt that we are all interested in true crime. We are all interested in, in murder stories. And, and that, you know, was, was something that I think we had to, had to tackle head on. Mark Lewis is the director of Don't with Cats. It's available now on Netflix. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Coming up on The Frame, Isabella Rossellini turns her love of animals into a circus of sorts. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Frame. I'm John Horn. Isabella Rossellini is famous for many things, for being the daughter of Ingrid Bergman and filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, for her career as a glamorous model, and for her riveting role in David Lynch's Blue Velvet. But lately, she's been writing and performing short films and stage shows that focus on her fascination with the animal kingdom. Rossellini met with the Frame contributor Chloe Veltman at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. And as exotic birds and butterflies fluttered above, they chatted about training dogs, breeding chickens, and making theater. Get out of there! Get out! Put your hands up! On your head! Do it! That's Isabella Rossellini in an intense scene from the 1986 thriller Blue Velvet. These days, the actor's wild animal instincts are coming out in a very different way. Isn't it wonderful that the big bad wolf was taken out of you and now you are just a little nice doggy? That's Rossellini and her dog, Pan. They're coming to L.A. with Link Link Circus, a stage show all about animal behaviour. The tour also had a stop in San Francisco and it seemed like the California Academy of Sciences was a perfect place for us to meet. Look how many different colours they have. These butterflies are amazing. Wow. Oh yeah, you put some oranges there to attract them, see? They come to the dish. It's a little surreal to be strolling around the Cal Academy's four-storey replica of a tropical rainforest on a cold, wet Monday evening with this Hollywood icon. Rossellini's just flown in from Seattle. 
Even though she's tired from all the travel, she still exudes elegance and an impish sense of humour. She tells me she's been interested in the animal kingdom since she was a little girl. Well, my parents always had dogs and cats, so I think their first connections were the pet at home. But we are a family of animal lovers. There was a photo of the family recently, and we are five people, and we were photographed with our dogs, and we were six dogs. The dogs outnumbered us. (laughs) (laughs) You went back to school to get a master's degree in animal behaviour. What's one of the most surprising things you've learned about the relationship between animals and humans in the course of your studies? The process of domestication, it was unclear to me. It's still unclear, but of course, a wolf became the dog, a buffalo became the cow, a wild fowl became domestic chickens, and how our ancestors, without even understanding evolution, were able to create animals that were useful to themselves. That, to me, is a fascinating process. Link Link Circus builds on a series of films and performances you created about the mating and parenting habits of various animals. Why did you decide to parlay your academic pursuits into theatrical ones? So as an actress, I also did a lot of independent films. So I was associated with Sundance and they asked me, would you like to make a series of two minutes film? But if it is about the environment, because Robert Redford is such a great environmentalist, we will be more inclined to finance it. And at first I said, well, I'm not, I don't know what to do. And then, boom, I said, oh, we could do the mating ritual of animals. It could be very simple. So I say, if I were a fly, I'd become a fly. I would mate this way. If I were an earthworm, I'd transform myself in an earthworm. And they mate that way. They ordered the series, and it was very successful. It really opened up a whole new career for me in my 60s. What makes this latest show different from your previous animal-focused productions? This one is made a little bit like a circus. There is also a little doggy. She does dress up as different animals. Bee, a dinosaur, a sheep, a lion, a chicken. Does she make the noises of the chickens and the lions? No, no, she barks. (laughs) Do you ever feel like she steals the limelight from you? Oh, yeah, she does, definitely. Everybody, they want to meet her at the end. Everybody comes with treats, no more flowers for me. <laughs> so, um, you recently started raising chickens, I read, at your Long Island farm, and you even wrote a book about it. What do you learn from hanging out with your chickens? We're trying to bring back, instead of the industrial chicken, heritage breeds. They are healthier animals. They are able to raise their baby naturally. So I think it's important not only to conserve for nostalgia of the past, but because it's very important to keep the biodiversity. How do people react when they hear Isabella Rossellini, you know, movie star, model, muse to Martin Scorsese and David Lynch, has written a book about chicken farming and is touring around the country with her dog in a circus? I mean, it's all so different, Isabella. Sometimes I see that people might have just known me as a, as a model and so they imagine that, you know, I wear a lot of makeup and I only talk about facial. And so when they say, well, you're a farmer, I didn't expect that. But I just do what is interesting to me. And there are many things that are interesting to me from cosmetics to animals. (laughs) Isabella Rossellini performs Link Link Circus at the Lodge Room in Highland Park on February 13th and 14th and also the 17th through the 19th. This weekend, she's at the Malibu Playhouse. And that'll do it for today. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You'll find us at The Frame. 
I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. Hey, it's Brian, the host of How to LA, a podcast that is a love letter to Los Angeles. Independent movie theaters are having a glow up moment. Vidiots and Eagle Rock, amazing. We have our friends at the American Cinematheque. The Vista just reopened. In our new series, Revival House, we'll take you inside these spots and share their history because movie history is LA history. Listen to Revival House on How to LA wherever you listen to podcasts.